1: the first Capital reads Q1 Results conference call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. I would now like to turn the conference over to Allison. Please proceed with your presentation.
2: Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. In discussing our financial and operating performance and in responding to your questions during today's call, we may make forward-looking statements. These statements are based on our current estimates and assumptions, many of which are beyond our control, and are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed or implied in these forward-looking statements. A summary of these underlying assumptions, risks, and uncertainties is contained in our various securities filings, including our Q1 MD&A, our MD&A for the year ended December 31, 2020, and our current AIF, which are available on SEDAR and on our website. These forward-looking statements are made as of today's date and except as required by securities law, we undertake no obligation to publicly update or revise any such statements. During today's call, we will also be referencing certain financial measures that are non-IFRS measures. These do not have standardized meanings prescribed by IFRS and should not be construed as alternatives to net income or cash flow from operating activities determined in accordance with IFRS. Management provides these measures as a complement to IFRS measures to aid in, ass- in assessing the REIT's performance. These non-IFRS measures are further defined and discussed in our MD&A, which should be read in conjunction with this conference call. I will now turn the call over to Adam.
3: Thanks very much, Allison. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for our first quarter conference call. In addition to Allison, with me today are several members of the FCR team, including Jordy Robbins and Neil Downey, both of who you will hear from shortly. Feels like Neil's been here a while, but it is his first conference call, or at least the first one answering questions instead of asking them. So welcome, Neil. It's been great to have you on board. Now turn into the quarter. It's safe to say that the environment, from an operating perspective, over the past year has been far from normal and has been subject to restrictions that have been more frequent and long-lasting than we initially expected back in the spring of 2020. That being said, our Q1 results continue to demonstrate the stability and resiliency of our portfolio during a quarter in which we had the most severe and longest-lasting restrictions imposed on our tenants and their customers since the pandemic began. Yet, same-property NOI and FFO per unit were marginally positive on a year-over-year basis for the first time since the pandemic started. These results were supported by continued leasing momentum, which Neil will touch on. Despite the lockdowns, our rent collections have been fairly stable over the last three quarters, tracking in the mid 90% range. Focusing on this quarter specifically, we have collected 95% of Q1 gross rent to date, notwithstanding a less favorable operating environment for many of our tenants to start the year. Similarly, Our collection rate on amounts that we have previously agreed to defer has also tracked in the mid 90% range. Our acquisition efforts continue to be opportunistic and strategic. Our Q1 acquisitions were small properties which expand existing positions we had already established in these neighborhoods. Despite their size, the addition of these parcels will enhance and improve these future redevelopments. FCR's conviction in our superurban strategy, which is focused on established, high-growth neighbourhoods situated in Canada's largest cities, is based on the multi-century evolution of cities as the principal place of preference for the majority of people to live, work, socialize, educate, and so on. Our portfolio is exceptionally well-positioned in this regard offering significant benefits and opportunities ahead for both FCR and the neighbourhoods in which we operate. We continue to make progress on our ESG mandate, further embedding environmental, social, and governance principles into our business and culture. Last quarter, we reviewed various milestones we had met and recognitions received, so I won't repeat those, but we'll add another. Our very own Michelle Walcow. SVP of Brand and Culture, was recently presented with the Best Executive Award from the Report on Business. Each year, 10 awards are made to non-CEO executives in five different functional job categories. Congratulations, Michelle, on this well-deserved honour. From a people and social perspective, we remain focused on fostering a culture that ensures equal opportunity and well-being for all employees, and our team has been one of our key strengths during these unusual times. Last quarter, we discussed our Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Council. At FCR, equity, inclusion, and diversity are at the core of our values. Our EDI Council is the engine that will drive these matters forward at FCR. Part of their mandate is to create meaningful actions that foster awareness and advocacy. Our employee-led council has identified the key pillars of focus which includes building our foundation for lifelong progress, education, awareness and community outreach in the key neighbourhoods we operate. This council is staffed with a diverse group of employees across departments and geographic locations. One trait that each of its 24 members have in common is their intense passion for EDI. They've been very busy, and I am so proud and thrilled with their progress because it will clearly lead to meaningful improvement at FCR. More on that to come. In conclusion, although the last year has been dominated by the pandemic and related lockdowns and restrictions, our focus is now clearly set beyond the pandemic. We expect a strong reopening for many impacted FCR tenants. We also believe we will enter that reopening phase from a solid position these are some of the reasons why. Great locations maintaining strong occupancy, rising rental rates for both renewal and new space leasing owing to the desirability of these great locations, growing same property NOI. A strong and improving tenant base as turnover has provided opportunities which were previously prevented by lease contracts. Our density pipeline is exceptionally deep with material progress and NAV creation expected from it over the short, medium and long term. This together with other factors such as the incremental retained cash flow from the distribution cut will also contribute to strengthening our balance sheet. Our demographic profile is also the best it has ever been, with over 300,000 people on average now living within 5 kilometers of FCR properties, making us the clear and distant leader amongst our peers. To close, FCR represents the best opportunity to invest in a super-urban strategy and for the time being at a material discount to our net asset value. And with this platform, our development team is working tirelessly to advance our current projects and planning our new neighborhoods. More to come on that. So, with that, I will now pass things over to you, Neil. Neil? Uh,
4: thank you, Adam. And for those joining today, we do have a webcast conference call slide deck, and that slide deck has also been posted to our website. So I'll jump right into the numbers on slide seven. First quarter of 21 FFO was 55 million or 25 cents a unit. Representing an increase of 2% over last year's 53.9 million or 24 cents a unit. Working from the top down, total net operating income of 101 million dollars decreased by 2 million or 2% year over year from 103 million last year. Key driver of the decline is $2.2 million of lower NOI due to property dispositions over the past 12 months. Net of lower interest expense that was primarily attributable to these dispositions, plus some interest rate roll-down, FFO dilution from trailing 12-month asset sales was less than $0.01 per unit on an annualized basis. As Adam indicated, organic growth was slightly positive which we believe is quite a favorable showing under the circumstances. And I'll provide a bit more color on that in a moment. Moving to interest and other income where the contribution decreased by 800,000 year over year, decline was principally related to lower interest income on loans receivable, the balance of which was $84 million at the end of the first quarter, versus $132 million one year ago. Partially offsetting the decline in interest income was higher fee income. Year over year, G&A and trust expenses increased by 1.1 million in the first quarter of 2021. Of note, the quarter does include approximately $1 million of employee restructuring expenses. And finally, our other gains, losses, and expenses line is 3.6 million favorable this year relative to last. The prior period included unrealized mark-to-market losses on marketable securities, a tag end of the 2019 REIT conversion expenses, and some residential selling costs. These non-operating amounts are provided for you on slide eight. Well, not detailed in the conference call deck specifically, I will provide several points of context regarding our Q121 results relative to the fourth quarter of last year. Firstly, as I just indicated, the recent quarter did include about a million dollars of restructuring costs. But equally, the fourth quarter of last year in GNA expenses, there was a like amount reversal of a variable compensation accrual. So collectively, these two factors created a quarterly swing in GNA of about $2 million or one cent per unit. Secondly, Q121 variable revenues were 2.2 million lower than the fourth quarter. Now, the nature of our business is such that seasonality is not usually much of a factor. In Q121, however, the variable uh, revenue decline is mostly due to the extended lockdowns in some of our bigger markets. And finally, again, relative to the fourth quarter, there were some other operating expense items that were higher in the first quarter, mostly due to timing. Moving to slide nine, the REIT's FFO payout ratio was 43% this year versus 88% last year. The key driver, of course, was the January 2021 distribution reduction. This lower distribution rate provides FCR with 95 million of annualized incremental retained cash, which we believe can propel FFO and NAV per unit growth from what it might otherwise be. The bottom part of this slide provides our ACFO derivation. In the first quarter of 2021, ACFO increased by approximately 4 million or 10% aided principally, principally by lower capital expenditures. Our ACFO payout ratio is derived from trailing 12 month cash distributed versus trailing 12 month ACFO. And as such, the ratio remains steady as at Q1 21 versus Q1 20. As our rolling four-quarter data is incorporated into the calculation, we anticipate the ACFO payout ratio will also trend lower. Moving ahead to touch on some of our operating highlights. Q121 same property NOI growth was 0.4 million or 0.4% positive. So in the face of very restrictive lockdowns, we generated modest same property NOI growth. Notably, this was against what we would describe as a pre-pandemic quarter. For those of you who do wish to isolate things like lease termination fees, they were 697,000 in the recent quarter versus 304,000 a year ago. So the increase of about 400,000 did benefit same property NOI growth by coincidentally 0.4%. On the flip side, however, factors depressing Q1 21 organic growth included a year-over-year increase of 2.6 million in our same property bad debt expense. On a standalone basis, this hurt organic growth by a sizable 2.7 percentage points. And as you might imagine under the circumstances of widespread lockdowns in the recent quarter, there was a decline year over year in variable revenues that also adversely impacted Q1 21 same property NOI growth. So overall, I believe these statistics truly reaffirm the resiliency of our business. Moving ahead, Q1 leasing momentum remained solid. During the quarter, we had 547,000 square feet of expiries. We renewed 450,000 square feet of leases, generating an 8.4% rental uplift. Of note, within the Q1 21 statistics, there were two large fixed flat rate lease renewals covering 186,000 square feet of area in total, or about 40% of the renewed GLA. As indicated on slide 11, I believe it is, our average net rent per square foot rounded out the first quarter at $21.99. That's an increase of 10 cents per square foot from year-end 2020, and that's principally a function of rent escalations. On a year-over-year basis, net rent increased 48 cents per square foot or 2.2% from $21.51. That growth is generated uh, quite equally between rent escalations, renewal lifts, and an impact uh, from some dispositions where we did sell properties with lower average net rents. Briefly on slide 13, our Q1 year-end occupancy was 95.8%. That's down 40 basis points from year-end 2020 and down 60 basis points year over year. The first quarter of 2021, specifically 20 basis points of that impact was due to 97,000 square feet of closures exceeding 45,000 square feet of openings. Now, placing the occupancy decline into context, recall that a year ago, our occupancy was close to an all-time high. And if you look back over a decade at FCR's historical data, it does show that the portfolio is most frequently between 95 and 96% occupancy. Moreover, owing in a large part to portfolio quality improvement over time, in the recent years leading up to 2020, occupancy was 96% plus. Turning to slide 14, during the first quarter we invested $44 million into development, redevelopment, and portfolio capex. Investment activity included development capex of $29 million, where the bigger spends were our Leaside Village, Dundas and Auckland, and Wilderton projects. Adding to this was portfolio sustaining and revenue enhancing of capital uh, capex of $11 million, as well as approximately $4 million invested into residential inventory. And during the first quarter, we did complete two small property acquisitions for an 8 million dollar investment at our share. Turning to our balance sheet, and in this, in this regard, I would refer you to, to slides 15 through 17 of the deck. At the end of the first quarter, total property assets at our share, including residential inventory, our hotel and properties held for sale, they were 9.7 billion in total. This amount was unchanged from year-end 2020 and on a year-over-year basis. Of note, within our mDNA disclosures, there, there are some enhancements with respect to our investment properties, their character, their valuations, and their income generation potential. We hope that you find these disclosure changes useful in understanding our business and the inherent value in our company. For 2021, property values have been, in aggregate, quite steady. Our March 31st overall weighted average stabilized cap rate was 5.0%, and that number is consistent with year-end 2020. Within FCR's balance sheet, you will note that some property classification amounts have changed. Most notably, held-for-sale properties are $254 million at our share at the end of the first quarter and that's an increase of 92 million from year-end 2020. While we do not disclose our held-for-sale properties on an asset-by-asset basis, I will note for you that there's 11 properties in this category. They are a mix of density value, income-producing, and development properties, and this is something you should be able to easily infer based upon the relatively modest NOI contribution from these assets in the first quarter of 2021. Our net debt rounded out Q1 at $4.7 billion. again unchanged from year-end 2020. So too is our net debt-to-total-assets ratio of 47.3% unchanged. Although there was essentially no movement in the amount of debt over the last three months, there were some changes in our debt composition. We did carry over $100 million of cash coming into Q1. On March 1st, upon the maturity, we repaid $175 million Series N unsecured debenture. We also funded $14 million of mortgage maturities and amortization in the first quarter. These debt repayments, along with small acquisitions, maintenance capex, development capex, are such that our cash balance rounded out the first quarter at $19 million, representing a drawdown of $82 million from the end of the fourth quarter. During the quarter, we also drew approximately $108 million on our credit facilities, including $104 million on our revolvers and $5 million on our construction facilities. At March 31st, we had $720 million of availability under our credit facilities, and including our cash balances, this put total liquidity at $739 million. Today, our corporate liquidity is slightly higher at $745 million. And on slide 17, specifically, you can see a graphical depiction of our term debt maturities. Those maturities are very modest this year. They include only $56 million of mortgage maturities over the balance of the year, and that's about 1% of our total debt. And so, with significant FFO retention, expected asset sale proceeds as the year progresses, from these uh, notes, it is very clear First Capital is operating from a position of significant financial strength. I'll now turn the call to FCR's Chief Operating Officer, Jordy Robbins, who will provide some further comments that are principally related to our development activities.
5: Thanks, Neil, and good afternoon. In Q1, notwithstanding extensive lockdowns, we made meaningful progress both with our major construction projects and with our entitlement program. Given the nature of the work, all our major projects were exempted from the government mandated shutdowns. What's more, our extraordinary construction team successfully managed both manpower and materials. As a result, we've not seen any material impact to our construction schedules or to our budgets. In Montreal, the construction of the first phase of our Wilderton development located in Cotonège continues to progress. The majority of the 110,000 square feet of retail space has been pre-leased and we are nearing completion and expect to deliver possession to Metro and PharmaPrix in the second quarter. With the progress we've made to date on the project, we're now in the process of selecting a residential development partner for the final phase consisting of a 200,000 square foot, 111 unit residential rental building that we plan to begin construction on next year. Moving to Toronto in Q1, we received our occupancy permit for the first commercial floors of Station Place, our newly named mixed use retail and rental residential project located at Dundas and Auckland, abutting the Kipling Transit Hub. Leasing of the residential component will commence later this year. Farmboy took possession of their 26,000 square foot space in April and is currently fixturing with a planned opening date in the second half. Construction on the 70,000 square foot expansion to our Leaside Village Centre in Toronto was also deemed essential, given our new tenants operate in the healthcare sector. New development is 85% lease and the tenants in, this, uh, in the primary building, including Shoppers Drug Mart, Smart, uh, and a collection of specialty medical office tenants took possession of their respective premises in Q1 with a plan to open later this year. We know the addition of these new uses will broaden and enhance consumer appeal to this geothermal open air center anchored by a Longo supermarket. By incorporating these new lands, it also provides our expanded retail center frontage and access from three public streets, which will improve access and traffic flow through the entire center. Our 50 unit townhome joint venture development with Green Park adjacent to our Rutherford Marketplace is nearing completion as well. The final units were sold in Q1, with a registration scheduled to occur in June and all closings to occur before the end of the year. At Humbertown, Sales at Edenbridge, our 260,000-square-foot retail condominium mixed-use joint venture project with Tridell, are also progressing well, with 79% or 166 of the units now sold. As anticipated, given the demographic profile of the neighborhood, purchasers are primarily owner occupants LCBO has been relocated to the main site and demolition of their former premises is now complete. Considering what we're seeing both in our portfolio and in the marketplace, we retain a positive view towards mixed-use development in our super-urban neighborhoods. Most of our 23 million square foot development pipeline is residential. And across the country, and in Toronto specifically, where over half this density is located, there remains a housing supply shortage. This shortage, coupled with low interest rates, is driving residential demand and, in turn, pricing higher, as evidenced by a number of residential high-rise projects that have recently come to market. In Q1, we successfully launched the sales of our 400 King Street development joint venture with Plaza Corp. Located on King Street West in Toronto, this 500,000-square-foot mixed-use retail condo Uh, was incredibly well received with over 350 or 60% of the units sold within the first four weeks of launch. The average price of these units is about $1,400 per square foot, higher than our pre-COVID pricing expectations. We anticipate the start of construction at 400 King in early 2022. Turning to entitlements, we've had a very busy quarter with important progress on several of our active files. The most exciting of which relates to our 2150 Lakeshore development. On April 22nd, after years of effort by our dedicated team, the Planning and Housing Committee at the City of Toronto recommended approval of the Christie Secondary Plan and Zoning Bylaw, which governs our 28 acre development site. With this recommendation, we expect that Toronto City Council will approve the Christie Secondary Plan and Bylaw at this week's City of Toronto Council meeting. This draft zoning bylaw recommended for approval by the Planning and Housing Committee contemplates permission for seven and a half million square feet of total density on our property. This density is made up of 6.3 million square feet of residential and a further 1.2 million square feet of commercial density. The draft bylaw further contemplates approximately 7,500 new residential units with 15 tall towers ranging in height from 28 to 67 stories. The project will also incorporate a Metrolinx GO station, two parks totaling three acres, over an acre of privately owned public space, community center, and two elementary schools. Once approved at council this week, there are a few procedural steps for the zoning bylaw to become enacted and in full force, which we expect will occur by the end of this year. As we've articulated in the past, 2150 is a generational development property that will be transformative for FCR and for the City of Toronto. What's more, we carry 2150 today at cost on our balance sheet. Moving to Vancouver, North Vancouver specifically, we're redeveloping our smallest property in the neighbourhood with a residential partner that we have selected. Over the course of the last 15 months, we've been working on securing the required municipal approvals for proposed 70,000-square-foot, 75-unit, multifamily, residential rental development. Final approvals are now in place and demolition of the structure is currently underway with first phase occupancy expected in 2023. We have an additional 11 million square feet of entitlement submissions at various stages with municipalities across the country and a further 9 million square feet of incremental density where entitlements have yet to be submitted. COVID may have slowed the approval timeline slightly, but as demonstrated by our 2150 Lakeshore application, it has not prevented our incredible development team from advancing these files. While we can't be specific given the sensitivities of discussions underway, we can say that over the course of the first quarter, We made great strides in advancing negotiations for a number of these applications and look forward to sharing our progress with you over the next several quarters. Before we open it up for QA, it's important to point out that our entitlement program will continue into 2021 and 2022 with another 1.9 million square feet of submissions in the queue. As these previous and future applications are approved, we will be able to create and realize meaningful value but retain optionality by developing this incremental density ourselves with a strategic partner or by selling it to a third party.
3: Okay, so that concludes the prepared remarks. Paul, if, uh, if you can open up the line for questions, that would be wonderful.
1: Certainly, thank you very much. We uh, will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on the device's keypad. You can cancel your question at any time by pressing the star 2. So please press star 1 at this time. If you have a question, there will be a brief pause while the participants register. We thank you for your patience. We have a first question from Tal Woolley. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, good afternoon.
6: Hello? How
3: are you doing, Tal? Okay,
6: sorry. <laughs> um just to start off with the Christie Cookie site, so um if the zoning comes through before the end of the year, and I think Adam, we talked about this last quarter, do you have a s will the will all the transit piece be decided over the course of this year as well?
7: I tell it's Geordie.
5: Uh, the answer to your question is the transit piece uh, will go along hand in hand. Uh, it may lag slightly, but it is uh, it is and will be resolved as part of the bylaw.
6: okay, and fair to say you've had conversations about uh, partner partnership potential on that site already.
3: Yeah, I mean, one one of the things we've said uh, uh, from the beginning uh, is that at an appropriate time, we we felt that uh, it was important for us to retain control over the master plan and the zoning process, and retain, um, it, you know, certainly the upside of that. And given our platform capabilities and our comfort level taking that on, uh, we we also said though that when it starts to shift uh, uh, towards uh, a point in time where physical construction would start taking place, given uh, the mass amount of construction and infrastructure that will take place. That's where we have long believed that there would be a, a significant benefit to bringing a strategic development partner uh, to, to co-develop uh, it with us. Uh, and so, certainly, you know, as time has gone on, we have gotten a lot closer to that, and that's something that's been brought more to the forefront
6: of our thinking. And. Uh, Obviously, want to retain you know significant interest in this. Are you looking to be like leading the development of this, or when you say strategic partner, do you mean you might let provide a managing interest to someone else in some some phases of the project?
3: Yeah, the, I mean the, the the site is so large uh, and so complicated that when we look at it, there are elements where we feel we would be the logical platform to lead uh, you know the development. Uh, there are other elements of it where, you know, if we're successful in selecting the right partner, we think we can bring in someone who is more, uh, more, even more well-equipped uh, to do those those phases. So, uh, I, I would anticipate uh, us playing various roles depending on the phase and components and elements of, of the project, and it'll depend on uh, the skill set of our partner uh, ultimately
6: uh, when they're brought in. Okay, um, and then. I just wanted to ask a bit about uh, King Highline. So there's still about, I believe it's just under thirty thousand square feet you're completing, and I'm just wondering what what parts of that that is like what's still left to kind of complete on the site, and if you can give us an update just on how the residential operations have gone there.
3: Yeah, J- Jordy will comment more more on it, but uh, it, it is all residential. Uh, so the retail is about one hundred. 60,000 square feet, that, that, that's been fully leased uh, for quite some time. All tenants uh, in the commercial retail component are in occupancy uh, and paying uh, paying full rent. Um, so the balance is some of the residual components of the residential that are, are nearing completion and likely in the next quarter or two will transfer in terms of... Uh, and just so, just so we're clear, was the other part of your question how the residential is going? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, so that's the part I'm going to turn it over to Geordie.
5: Okay, so um, uh, we're just about 70% of the 506 units are uh, leased today. Average rents are generally in line with uh, with our budget. Um, as you and, and probably everyone else have seen uh, with other purpose-built rental property owners uh, in the city and, and the country, um, residential rental has been a segment that has been uh, certainly, most impacted by COVID. And King Highline, I would say, is no exception to that. And so um, it has certainly delayed our lease up uh, period. Um, but I, I do suggest to you, uh, certainly, if the last month or month and a half is any indication that um, the trend is starting to move the other way. Um, and generally speaking, I would say we, we remain uh, very bullish on uh, rental residential in particular, uh, in particular in Toronto. In the case of King Highline, um, it really benefits our entire Liberty uh, Village portfolio, and, and frankly, makes all of it better.
6: Okay, and then just lastly, on the Rutherford Marketplace closing, just like when I look at sort of the rough invested capital there, like that—that's maybe a couple pennies towards the back half of the year in terms of FFO. Is that the right way to think about it?
3: Uh, sorry, we're we're talking Rutherford or Lee
6: The Rutherford, the condo closing?
3: The closing of the townhomes?
6: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, Tal, I think as we indicated, that's likely to be a Q3 uh, closing, and there will be some development profits there that are effectively part of our uh, income, uh, interest, and other income line. So uh, th- those will not be material in the in the context of our total FFO, but uh, that's when you should be expecting them and and where they will probably show up in the P and L.
6: Okay, perfect. Thanks very much, gentlemen.
3: Okay, thank you, Tal.
1: Thank you. The next question is from Pammy Beer. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thanks
8: and uh, hi everyone. Um, just with respect to the i guess the expected approval of christie cookie how are you thinking about recording I get the incremental value created in terms of the process from zoning and or successful zoning and then any comments on perhaps the potential magnitude and, and timing of that
3: yeah i mean our, our 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 process for writing up uh land that's going through the development process uh is is generally Uh, generally the the first write-up occurs when we have certainty or a high degree of certainty around zoning. Um, We we think we're within a quarter of achieving that on Christy Cookie. So, um, you know, unless something unfolds different than what we expect at this point, uh, we think that uh, likely in Q2 that milestone gets achieved and consequently uh, there would be an impact because there is we're not going to comment on the magnitude of it, but there is a meaningful uh, delta between what it's being carried on on our balance sheet, which still represents historical cost, uh, and what um, you know the range of market value would be for a zone site. And
8: sorry, Adam, can you maybe just remind us what what it's carried on the balance
3: sheet at? No, we 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 never disclose individual asset values uh, that we're carrying it at, but. Um, you know, we disclosed uh, at the time of acquisition what we what it cost to purchase. Uh, we've been working very hard on it, lots of sweat equity invested, but also uh, some meaningful capital as well. And so you, you'll be able to get in the ballpark, Pommy, but uh, d- disclosing what we're carrying individual assets at is not, not something that we've historically done and are not planning to change that anytime soon. Got it. Um,
8: okay, and then just... Um, Maybe going back to your comments on partners there, I guess, again, thinking about it as, you know, getting through the zoning process or successfully zoned it, whether it's next quarter or maybe shortly after. But is it uh, maybe too early then to still think about monetizing any portion of that value created, um, or would that
3: be under consideration this year? Um. There's, uh, look, one of the things we're really excited about with Christie is, uh, is the number of levers that it represents for us. Um, and while the monetization of it is, you know, a portion of it's appealing to us, uh, what's more important to us is, is securing the right partner because, you know, this, this is a, a multi-billion dollar development that should have a very material amount of profit in it uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, mining and maximizing that profit uh, in combination with delivering a state of the art, you know, from an ESG perspective, neighborhood and delivering some of the social benefits we think it can, environmental benefits that we think it can. Uh, the, the right partner will be very, very important uh, for us to achieve Christie's maximum potential in that regard, both financial and non financial. And so, um that's going to take priority um over monetization obviously they're both really important to us but just so we're clear on where we're focused in terms of priorities uh, we think assembling the right development partnership group to complement our skills uh will be exceptionally valuable uh and uh and that may not mean that it goes to you know someone that's going to pay the highest price and you know that's just something we'll factor into the decision making
8: Got it. Um, Okay. And just maybe one last one for me, Um, coming back to just the overall disposition program, uh, you know, and looking beyond, I guess, the, I think there's 275 million help for sale. You know, is it it fair to think that perhaps the bulk of what might be sold um, beyond that amount and thinking about this year or even next year, uh, it's fair to think that those would have similar attributes meaning minimal NOI and uh or do you see them see some additional or more traditional income producing properties um on deck for the rest of this year
3: uh it, yeah it's a very good question Pommy, and and our disposition program has evolved in a a very deliberate way and uh you know we 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 didn't we we didn't necessarily take the easiest path forward so we we really started at 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 uh focused on selling what we viewed as to be the tougher assets we would have to sell. And some of those went a lot better than we expected. And, you know, some of them were a bit tougher and, and uh, all in all, we felt the business was much better off proceeding the way we did. Uh, they they were the most painful because they also carried the highest uh, yields in place, which resulted in the most dilution from an FFO perspective. Then, you know, we said, okay, so we've kind of cleared, cleared uh, the vast majority of those types of assets. And so then, then the composition started to change. And if if you look at the transactions that we closed at the end of last year, they were they were different. They weren't they were the composition between density and uh, IPP started to gravitate a bit, not materially, um, but but the 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 cap rate and the quality of the assets, uh, you know, uh, the IPP portions were they're great assets, but they are in in the bottom bucket of our portfolio. They would not have been. Uh, and in that same bottom bucket, you know, two or three years ago. So, uh, so you see cap rates coming in, and then we've said, um, you know, Anil's comments in the in in uh, when he touched on this in his opening remarks would indicate that there's a much more balanced mix between density and IPP and held for sale. That's definitely something that we see uh, continuing as we progress through the current uh, assets held for sale and others that you know we would contemplate adding in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. I will turn her back. Okay. Thank you very much, Pommy.
1: Thank you. The next question is from Dean Wilkinson. Please go
9: ahead, sir. So your line is open. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone.
3: Good afternoon, Dean. Uh,
9: first, I'd like to congratulate Michelle on, on, on her award. I think with, with Neil, that puts three Humberview High School grads on this, this, uh, this phone call. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mention
3: that. Michelle has also reminded me of uh, the Humberview Alumni connect.: Yeah,
9: <laughs> so there's, there's got to be something with our English teacher. there. Um, my question is for, for Mr. Downey. Um, Neil, you come into this role with, with a very unique and tenured skill set and, and have a lens, uh, I, I would argue, unlike no other CFO in the space. Um, as, as you've sort of looked over this and have started, do you see opportunities um, and it's not to suggest that disclosure was lacking in any way, shape or form, but do you see opportunities to help bridge that disclosure gap on things like entitlements and, and excess density to, to narrow that you know five dollar gap between where the units are trading and, and where your IFRS book value is? and, and, and sort of how are you thinking? about, for lack of a better term, bringing Mohammed to the mountain.
4: Well, Dean, I don't recall that you were on the high school basketball team, but that sounds like a bit of a layup. <laughs> um, you do see some changes, I hope, uh, within the MDNA, specifically in the, the section entitled Valuation of Investment Properties. And, um, you know, the objective here really was to try and add some clarity in terms of the components of value within FCR's portfolio. And, uh, and hopefully what you can see from that on, on page 13 of the mDNA in particular is that you know we generate uh, a, a, the overwhelming majority of our income off of $8.4 billion of generally stabilized same property assets. And then beyond that, we do have 1.1 billion of other assets, including major redevelopment, ground-up development, properties under construction, are held for sale bucket, as we've uh, as we've already discussed. And those assets, characteristically, you can see, are earning a fairly low NOI yield. Um, but for the most part, they're not. Their value is not in the NOI that's in place. Right. In many cases. Uh, the value for instance is in uh, the as of right density within these buckets um, the fact that some of these assets are still in transition etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know I would say that we are hopeful that, uh, that this will help uh, readers of our disclosures you know maybe uh, you know bridge some of the gap that's been there in, in, in terms of uh, understanding the components of value
9: yeah, I guess it's 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 a problem that's endemic within the space, right? Uh, the way we've always looked at NAVs, it's like a one-year DCF, and, and that's um, you know not what the real world looks like. So, so um, big big job ahead of you, but um, I, I, I'm sure I'm sure we'll we'll all get there. That's all I had. I'll hand it back over. Thanks.
3: Okay. Thank you very much, Dean.
1: Thank you. The next question is from Mark Rothschild. Please go ahead. Your line is open.
7: Thanks, and good afternoon, everyone. In regards to the, the releasing spreads, which I think were 8% in a quarter, just like a, a few questions on that. Um, one, is, is that a good number to take? Obviously, it jumps down a little bit as, as a, a trend that you think you can operate around now. And in that context, um, do you think market rents have stabilized? Um, is there good information now to know where rents are? Have they moved at all? And maybe you could also just expand on it. I'm not sure if he disclosed the retention rate of leases that expired in the quarter. It might be in the disclosure, and I missed it. Um, what was the retention rate for the quarter?
3: Yeah, so I'll start with your last uh, point, Mark. So you're right. We, we haven't typically disclosed it because we, we don't actually place a whole lot of relevance on it. Um, higher is not better in our mind in terms of retention. We, we have... Uh, uh, really benefited from the turnover of specific space over time and you know there's no shortage of instances where we get control of space and a tenant may want to renew and we're the ones that um, uh, see a, a, a different opportunity for the space. Uh, this quarter Neil did in his prepared remarks uh, give you the elements of the retention rate. It was about 72 percent I believe. Um, we We like it to be uh, not much less than 70, not as high as 80, generally, that, that's generally where we've run. Um, we have not seen uh, much of a change to that, uh, with the exception of Q2 of 2020, where there were a couple of instances that uh, we may have been uh, you know, more compelled to take space back, but given the uncertainty in the world at the time, uh, we chose to renew. So it was one of our, one of our highest retention quarters uh, ever, actually. Um, Market rents, um, you, you, t- you touched on a couple of things that would indicate perhaps they've moved around. We, we have not seen that. Um, market rents, and, and in fact, most of the leasing metrics, if not all of them, is the one element of the business. We have not seen evidence of the pandemic. And so uh, we have not seen a softening of rents uh, uh, at all. Um, and uh, and and on renewal rates, that's been pretty much the same thing. Um you know, the current quarter was decent. It, it was weighed down by uh, a couple of large fixed flat rate renewals. So that would have taken it well through 10%. Uh, and, you know, our long-term average has been around 9%. That's probably a good, uh, a good, uh, a good place to, to, to assume uh, uh, in terms of looking forward.
7: Okay, great. And in regards to occupancy going forward, um, obviously it's held up pretty well, but there has been some slip. Uh, one of your competitors just... The other day on their earnings call, expressed confidence that it will recover, but it will be in 2022. Um, Would you agree with that sentiment, or do you think you can see an improvement in occupancy sooner?
4: Uh, Hi, Mark. It's Neil. You know, like many of our peers, we're we're probably not going to give you a a whole lot of uh, of forward-looking guidance with respect to things like you know, same property NOI growth, et cetera. you know, but to, to give you a bit of context, uh, firstly, in my prepared remarks, I, I did talk about the historical band of occupancy and how the portfolio has performed over the longer term and in more recent years. Um, in the short term, so let's say through till mid-year, uh, you know, we do not expect any significant occupancy change relative to the Q1 number that you'll see in our disclosures. Um, a point of note is that uh, earlier this year, Walmart did announce six store closures i believe it was across canada and uh, several individuals on this call did pick up the fact that two of those stores are within the fcr portfolio so as we look out to q3 specifically we do have an 87,000 square foot walmart store in calgary where the lease expires on september 15th so that will be vacant space in our third quarter statistics Uh, You know, that would represent 40 to 45 basis points of future vacancy. So that's something we know. It's something you should keep in mind. Um, As you're aware, these stores typically have a very low rent, and this location, it's no different. Uh, You know, think mid-single-digit rents per square foot in terms of dollars per square foot. And uh, you know, while we carry this vacancy, uh, you'll see it in, in the stats, and there will be some lost FFO as we progress through into year-end 2021. But our experience with similar situations like this gives us very little doubt that upon this, you know, this non-renewal is, in fact, a positive NPV outcome for us. You know, we'll just have to rework the space, reinvest in the property, and ultimately we will generate significantly higher future NOI.
7: Okay, great.
3: Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Mark.
1: Thank you. The next question is from Sam Demiani. Please go ahead. you line is open.
10: Thanks and good afternoon, everyone. I, I was wondering if, if we could uh just hear about the types of tenants that are expanding in your markets and in your in your portfolio in recent months, uh and what you're expecting as the year plays out based on what you're you're hearing from uh from your the retailer
1: tenants that you have.
3: Yeah, thanks for the question, Sam. Uh, we've got Carm with us, who's uh, who's who's closest to it of anyone in the room, and uh, and so he, uh, he he'll give you the details. But uh, I mean, the short answer is it's been the same types of tenants that we've had in the portfolio from the beginning. We we see much less change than we thought was potentially the case a year ago. Um, it's it spans both tenants that are deemed essential, -essential. non-essential, and uh, I think what you're going to hear from CARM is uh, the broad view is that there's a very strong reopening, recovery, economic recovery, whatever you want to call it, uh, pending, and uh, uh, what we're seeing are some preliminary signs of uh, retail tenants specifically um, really being aggressive in their actions to try and position themselves to take advantage of that uh, recovery, but in terms of the Specifics, types of categories, uh, and things like that. Oh, we'll, we'll let Karm speak to it. Carmen,
10: hi, hi, Sam. Um, you know, the story is really the, the tenants that were active pre-COVID remained active during COVID. So you've seen some categories like food, drug, pet, uh, the discount retailers, the, um, QSR, home furnishing, medical uses, and office supplies really um, providing some strong uh, demand. I think very recently. You've seen, we've seen some sit-down restaurants trying to regain in, uh, some traction in the marketplace. I, I view those tenants as really they're trying to gauge when the recovery is going to spark, and they want to get in to the gate now and look for some key locations, as well of, as, well as uh, apparel. I mean, it's not usually a big category for us, but some apparel tenants are starting to reengage with us and trying to uh, look for space. Okay, thanks thanks Carm, thanks Adam. That, that's helpful. What about what about fitness and and gyms Are are they are they uh how are they holding up and and what's your expectation over the over the medium term?
3: Yeah, they I mean, look, they've they've had a tough go, uh, no question about that. Um uh we we're feeling uh like we have a lot of confidence in that category now versus a year ago and that source of confidence comes from uh, the multiple reopenings that have occurred so far in Canada, and in general, they've opened up exceptionally strong and recaptured a very high percentage of their, their sales volume, um, and, and probably more important than that is is uh, monitoring uh, that industry in other countries that are much more advanced and are effectively fully reopened, and uh, there, what, what, we, what we've seen is there's clear evidence that there's pent-up demand. It continues to be a growing sector. Um, uh, while people you know maneuvered through this so far through the pandemic, whether you know it be Peloton or et cetera, uh, they do go back to the fitness clubs in big numbers. And it will be uh, an important element of our merchandising mix going forward. And we have actually done a small handful of new deals uh, with fitness operators. In our properties, so I wouldn't call it, uh, you know, a category that we've done the most number of deals with. But surprisingly, at least to us, we have done some. Uh, They're with entities that are uh, reasonably well capitalized, um, established operators, strong operators, and uh, you know, we we think we'll continue to do more. But they're at a stage now where they've gone through, you know, obviously a very very tough time, and um, now can, can can can. cannot operate uh, in you know, several of the markets we're in. So that's, that's obviously problematic. But we haven't seen a, a spike in defaults or things like that, like we did last spring. So we feel like uh, the fitness tenants we have now are generally uh, holding in and will hold in uh, till the other side. And you know, generally the ones we've got we're happy with and we're going we're to try and support them to the other side. But uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of color on what we're seeing from a fitness perspective.
10: Thank you. That's helpful. And my my last question is just on uh, the distribution. It's been, I guess, four months now since the temporary distribution cut was was put in place. Um, with the four months now under under your belt, how do you feel about the prospect for um, you know deleveraging and and ultimately restating the the prior distribution?
3: Yeah, we we feel similarly to, uh, to to the way we did when we announced it. So. Um, we don't have anything new to, to say um, you know we think it, it's a helpful tool um, you know we still think it's a temporary tool um, you know but there's other things that are going to be required for us to get where we want to go to beyond that but uh, we think it, it was a step in the right direction given the environment and our shorter and medium term goals but um, yeah it's it's one element that we've looked to to help us, and we we have the same views on that topic as we did when we made the announcement
10: uh thank you and I'll just say the enhanced uh, fair value disclosure is is greatly appreciated. I'll turn it back.
3: it was my pleasure. Neil had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I say that jokingly, obviously that was a neil initiative uh okay, thank you, Sam.
1: Thank you. The next question is from Jenny Ma. Please go ahead.
0: Thanks and good afternoon. Uh, just hi, going Jenny. back to hi, just going back to the the development pipeline, I'm wondering if your thinking on apartments versus condos have shifted over the last while given that there's so many moving parts. Um it seems like at least with four hundred king you're getting some pretty strong pricing. But when you try to balance out some of the short-term challenges and potential um, risks with uh, with regulation around multifamily ownership um, and, and you know higher construction costs overall, and the certainty of selling off condo projects, has that changed your thinking around how to balance your residential development?
3: Uh, I, well, it, it actually extends beyond that because our ch- our changing has evolved a bit, um, and uh, and another element in addition to the ones you mentioned was the fact that as a public company um you know condo investments are are not treated in the most ideal fashion by the capital markets and and what i mean by that is you know you go through a, the development of a condominium and you know you take on debt while you're while you're going through that and the market you know fully factors in that debt into the business uh, but then when you realize the profits uh you know they can be meaningful but the market also discounts those as, you know, more one-time items and non-recurring. And so you, you kind of get the full, uh, you, you, you live with the full uh, um, headwind of the debt through the development, but then you kind of fall short of of uh, full credit for, for the profit. So it's not the most natural fit in our view. And so, you, you, you know, you went through a few condos that we have under uh, development right now. And I think what you'll see going forward for First Capital is that Um, We will do less condo development. Um, We will focus on uh, neighborhoods that are highly strategic for us, uh, where the economics are quite compelling, and where, you know, often where there's another benefit beyond the sole uh, profitability of the the single condo. So, uh, so, so we we will uh, we're 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 spread a little wider now than I think we would be in the future on on condo development. Look, every every project we've underwritten, uh, the condo uh, pro forma looks better than the rental pro forma, but we know over time, um, you, you know, you have to make your condo profits on completion. That's not the case with residential rental if you hold it, uh, and, and we've seen uh, wonderful value appreciation. You know, most people don't know. We actually built our own uh, first residential property, I think it was over 10 years ago now in Vancouver, uh, so it's not entirely new to us. And... Um, you know, the rents that we're, we're renting that project for now, uh, you know, I think are double what they were even 10 years ago. So uh, there's been a lot of value appreciation over that time period, but it didn't all occur on the day it was completed. So um, so we definitely have a bias towards rental. Um, it, it is more challenging in some places given the condo profitability. And so um, so in some cases where that's the type of profile that sits in our Density pipeline, you know that's a, that's a good example of some things that would make logical sense for us to monetize and uh, and recycle that capital into things that can generate a more recurring permanent income stream.
0: Thank you. That's great color. Um, with regards to the variable revenue component, um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more detail about what makes uh, that up. Like, you know, in terms of balance, how much of it is is the hotel versus um, you know, temporary rentals and, and parking, just how should we think about that piece, um, which, is not, which is not big, but it's, uh, there's a materiality to it, so anything would be helpful there.
4: Yeah, Jenny, it's, uh, it's Neil. So, you know, you have, I think, in essence, identified the components. It would be the hotels. Uh, it would be parking revenue. And uh, believe it or not, there is a small amount of percentage rents um, in the business that have you know, tended to be uh, consistent from year to year. So you, uh, you did identify the three primary sources. Um, obviously, it's very difficult for a hotel to be profitable uh, when things are pretty much in full lockdown and occupancy is close to zero. So you know, that would certainly uh, be a big part as to why the Q1 uh, was impacted in that regard.
0: Okay, so if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, there was basically no contribution um, from the hotel, and perhaps we should look at some pre-pandemic quarters to look at the the magnitude of that, um, and factoring for the change in ownership. Um, so I guess in Q1, then it's primarily the the, the parking and the and the percentage rents. Q1 versus Q4, yes. Okay. And how would you differentiate the percentage rents in that bucket versus the the actual line item for percentage rents?
4: Sorry, I, I don't quite catch the nature of the the question, but if you want we can we can look at it offline.
0: Sure, sure. We can do that. I'll follow up with you. And my uh last question is with regards to the held for sale um how should you think about the timing of uh, of these deals? Are, are these, you know, mostly one-off properties or is there a small portfolio in there that might take a little bit more time to close?
3: Um, there's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of uh, what's in there. Um, I think one of the rules with held for Sales, you have to expect to transact within a year. So we definitely expect to transact within a year. Um you know, we, we usually don't make any uh, formal disclosure until a minimum of when transactions are firm, uh, in some cases when they close. Um, and so we haven't reached that point on a material amount of it or, or you will expect to see that. So, um, so yeah, inside of a year, Jenny, uh, and, uh, you know, generally those those uh, those assets that are in there have identified buyers. And are subject to, you know, conditional agreements at this point.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much. I'll turn it back.
3: Okay, thanks Jenny.
1: Thank you. There are no further questions registered at this time. I will turn the call back to Adam Paul.
3: Okay, thank you Paul. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today, for taking the time to listen and participate in our Q1 conference call, and for your interest in First Capital. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.
1: Thank you. The conference is now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation.